0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. All of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit that promises for you and your children and all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer.
1: We're in week three now of this seven-week series we're calling Mere Christianity, the idea of which is to look at the seven basic building blocks of the Christian faith. We're tracking somewhat with... um, C.S. Lewis's book by that title, Mary Christianity, which, reminder, there are free copies in the uh, foyer at the resource table, so This is kind of required reading if you're a, a member of LMCC, so pick one of those up if you haven't already. So uh, we've talked about God and Jesus, and this week the title of the message is Faith, which means we're, this week we're talking about you. Um, to, to this point, it's kind of been, well, this is what Christians believe, this is what the Bible says. At some point, you have to ask, okay, well, what if I believe it? What if, what if this is something that I want to join, that I want to connect myself to? And I don't mean to this church, I mean to this God, this Christ. What am I supposed to do? What do I have to do? And conveniently, that's exactly the question that you hear asked in, in this morning's passage. It comes on the heels of the first Christian sermon ever preached. And it's, it, after they hear it, they, they're convinced and they say, What do I have to do? What do I have to do now? And what's interesting about that sermon, this is uh, Peter, first century, this is 80-30s, is how similar, how, how little preaching has changed in 2,000 years. You know, If you read the entire sermon, there was just a brief excerpt from it in the passage. But if you read the whole thing, what you'll see is it's very similar to a sermon you might hear at LMCC. It's better, but it's the same sort of thing. Um, he just takes these couple passages of Scripture and then lays out a, a logical argument. This is who God is this is who Jesus is, this is how you screwed up, this is why it's okay, why God still loves you, why there's hope. And he says all that, and then these these people say, okay, you know, what are we supposed to do? And what you see is that in response to that sermon, as has been the case um, with every Christian sermon ever preached since then, what happened with that sermon is that a certain subset of the people who were listening... uh, not only heard the voice of Peter when he was talking, but also heard the voice of God. It's happened with every single Christian sermon since. This is why we keep doing this, why we keep preaching. You know, because it's worth asking. You know, what, what is the deal? And it's not because it's so cool or or creative or interesting. It's actually, you know, very old fashioned and oftentimes quite clumsy and quite boring. The reason we keep doing it is because it is one of God's chosen channels for speaking to his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, It pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In other words, he says, It's kind of silly, isn't it? This guy getting up and, and talking, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of foolish. But God, in his pleasure, according to his whim, has said, this is what I want to use. This is the medium I want to use to talk to my people. And so every time the gospel is preached, every time a sermon is given based on the word of God, anywhere in the world, somebody is going to hear from God himself. And it happens here. Some of you, this morning even, will hear from God himself through my words. Does that mean that my words are the words of God? Of course not. It means that God uses my words for certain people in certain cases to speak to them. I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me, you know, it felt like you were talking just to me. Well, I wasn't, but somebody was. And it will happen. It will happen to you eventually. Now, it doesn't happen to everybody. And it won't happen to everybody, you know. So most of you here this morning won't hear from God. You'll just hear from me. And if you come here on a regular basis, most of the time, you won't hear from God. Most of the time, you'll just hear from me or from whoever else is preaching about God. You know, you have something to think about, and that's about it. But some of the time, some of the weeks, and you never know which week it's going to be, so that's why you have to come every week. (laughs) Some of the time, some of the weeks, you will hear from God himself through the foolishness of preaching. And that's what happened to these folks at this first sermon. They were cut to the heart, it said. Those are the words of the text. Have you ever been cut to the heart by a sermon? You, you may have, it may have happened to you, but you didn't have a phrase for it. It's when God's word goes through you like a knife, like a sharp blade. They were cut to the heart, and they said, okay, you know, you got me. Game, set, match. What do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. And what's nice about Peter's response is that he doesn't say, well, it's complicated. You know, Well, let me think about it. Well, I'm not sure. He gives a very clear, straightforward response to a very clear, straightforward question. And I hope that we can do the exact same thing this morning. So that's what I want to ask is what do I have to do if I want to become a Christian, if I want to join myself to this? And what the Bible says is there are four things you have to do. You know, you might have heard somebody say, well, you don't really have to do anything to become a Christian. That's false. That's clearly not what the New Testament says. You might have also heard somebody say, well, you actually have to do a whole lot of things to be a Christian. That's also false. You don't have to do... It's not that you don't have to do anything. It's not that you have to do a bunch of things. That You have to do a few things. Four things you have to do to become a Christian, to join, to unite yourself to this. Two internal things and two external things. The two internal things are repent and believe... The two external things are be baptized and partake in communion. Repentance, belief, baptism, and communion, those will be the four sections of this morning's message. So first, repent. The first thing you have to do to become a Christian is repent. And you see here in the passage, the first word out of Peter's mouth. They they say, what do we have to do? And he says, repent. That's the first thing he says. Now, I was just going on about how great it is that he's so clear. And it doesn't help if somebody's clear and direct if you don't know what the words they say mean. And that could be the case here with repent. You know, we've all heard the word repent, repentance, but we we have some idea what it means, but we, we might not be able to necessarily give a clear definition of it. And that's what I want to do this morning, give a clear definition of this word repentance. And we can start by defining it negatively, because there are two things that repentance is not that it's commonly confused with. One of these things precedes it and flows into it. One of these things follows it, flows out of it. But neither of them are repentance itself. So what are those two things? The first thing which flows into repentance is sorrow, feeling sorry for what you've done. And this is kind of the sense in which you hear the word repentance mistakenly used most of the time. You know, oh, he's repentant, he feels bad about it. But it's not repentance itself. What Paul says in Second Corinthians is, he says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It precedes it. Uh, but there's, it's, it's not a, a dumb deal. They're not synonymous because he says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. But then he contrasts that with another type of sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death. So what's the difference? really matters. Two opposite destinations. Godly sorrow is feeling sorry for breaking God's heart and for sorry for the way you've hurt others. Worldly sorrow is being sorry for yourself and beating yourself up about the bad things you've done. And you see a great example of this with Peter and Judas, who both betrayed Christ. Peter has a godly sorrow, which leads him to be repentant and to be restored eventually. Judas has worldly sorrow, which leads him to hang himself. So godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are very different. Sorrow is not repentance itself. It is a type of sorrow, a good type of sorrow, that can lead into repentance. The second thing that's not repentance itself is changed behavior, which is what you you know you might be thinking as you hear, okay, repentance is more than just being sorry. You think, okay, so repentance is not doing it again. You know, and that's you may say that as a parent, you know, don't say you're sorry, just don't do it again. Is that repentance, a changed behavior? No, that's not repentance either. That is something that follows repentance, but it cannot be repentance itself. You see here in the passage he says, yeah, they say, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to be saved? And Peter says, repent. Now, what we know from the rest of the New Testament is he can't be saying, well, clean up your life first. Change your behavior. Start living the right way. And then you can be united to Christ. Because there's a whole host of other scriptures that make clear that's not necessary. Rather, change behavior, living differently, not doing it again, is something that happens after repentance. It always follows true repentance, but it's not repentance itself. So what is repentance? Right smack dab in the middle between the godly sorrow that flows into it and the changed life that flows out of it is this thing that can happen in just a moment. What is it? To get at it, let's go to the words themselves. And the the English word isn't particularly helpful in this particular case, so uh, let's go to the Hebrew word and the the Greek word that the Bible uh, uses and that are translated as repent. The Greek word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, means literally to turn back. To return. The, uh, did I say the Greek word? That's the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means that. The Greek word, which is used in the New Testament, uh, metanoia, means to change your mind or to think differently afterwards. Is the word from which we get the uh, metamorphosis. So the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, to return, to turn back. And the, the Greek word, to change your mind. And putting those together, the, the best concise definition of biblical repentance is just to turn around to do a 180, to turn around. And you say, well, why do I need to turn around? One of the things we talk about a lot at this church is that every person is born facing away from God. That's called sin. Every person is born with their back to God. And most people just continue on that trajectory full speed ahead for their entire lives. Repentance is turning around. It's coming back to God, coming back to your Father, And it doesn't sound like it would be that hard, but what is so difficult about it is it means basically saying everything you've done up to that point has been mostly wrong and mostly a waste, and you have to completely cut your losses and start over. C.S. Lewis talks about it like this. He says, now, sorry, I I forgot to print this morning. So most people in my generation are quite comfortable with technology, but... um, It's hard. So he says, Now, what was the sort of hole man had got himself into? He had tried to set up on his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, and here's the key point, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the only way out of the hole. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself undergoing a kind of death. And that's that's exactly right. It's no fun at all. Because you have to say, you know, remember all those times I said, God, I've got this? Remember all those times I've said, I, I've got it covered. I don't need those rules. I don't need to follow that way. It means saying you were wrong about all that and starting completely over. That's repentance. And it, it eventually will lead to a changed life, to obedience to God's way. Not perfect obedience, but ever consistent obedience but it's it's something that precedes that it's just this moment of deciding to turn around first thing you have to do to become a christian repent number two believe first repent second believe you must repent and believe and when i say that it should confuse you at first if you were listening to the passage because it's not what peter says what peter says they say what do we have to do and what peter says is repent and be baptized. So we're going to get to baptism in just a second, but I'm inserting something here. It should should bother you if I insert things into Bible verses. Um, But you have to just trust me. On the basis of the rest of the New Testament, what's clear is that there is this implicit belief here as well. He's saying, repent and believe and express that belief through baptism. I could show you all the other verses some other time, but for now, just take my word for it. Repent and believe and express that belief through baptism. Say, okay, so repent and believe, what what do I have to believe? Well, you're already off on the wrong foot. As soon as you ask that question, what do I have to believe, you're already on the wrong track. Because the, the right question is not, what do I have to believe to be a Christian, but in whom do I have to believe? Anytime somebody says, you have to believe that in order to be a Christian... You can know it's whatever, however you fill in that statement, you have to believe that, dot, 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 whatever the fill in the blank is, it's probably going to be wrong. Because you don't really have to believe that anything so much as you have to believe in God and believe in Jesus. When I say believe in God, I don't mean believe that there is a God. You know, uh, that's like James talks about, even the demons believe that there is a God and shudder. So it's not that. That doesn't do anything for you to believe that there is a God. We can even take that one step further. It doesn't really do anything for you to believe that Jesus is God. Or to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Or even to believe that Jesus died for your sins. It's believing in. In God. In Jesus. And the word believe changes its meaning based on the object it's attached to. So if you say, I believe in this idea, that means you think the idea is true. But if you say, I believe in this person, that's different. God is a person, not an idea. If I say I believe in my wife, I don't mean that I believe she exists. I would hope so. I mean I believe in her. I I trust her. I depend on her. I can count on her. I believe in her. That's the sense in which you have to believe in God and in Jesus to to be saved, to be a Christian. You have to trust him. You have to trust him with your life. You have to trust him with your future, both in this life and the life to come. You have to trust Christ with all of you. Believe in him. Now, as a corollary to that, obviously, if you trust him, that means you, you take him at his word. So when he says he's God, you believe that. When he when you believe that he did rise from the dead, you believe that he did pay for your sins as corollaries, but you only believe all those things because you believe in him personally and trust him personally. We've talked about this concept a number of other weeks, so I'm going to move on this morning, but it's the second thing you have to do to become a Christian. First, repent, and then second, believe. So now let's move on to the two external things. So there's two internal and two external. The third thing you have to do overall, and the first external thing you have to do to become a christian unite yourself to christ is to be baptized and that's what peter says like like we mentioned a, a moment ago he says they say what do we have to do and he says repent and be baptized that's the the action you have to take so two questions i want to ask about baptism first what is baptism and second why baptism what is baptism and why baptism as far as the what it's pretty straightforward Uh, Any Christian from any denomination would agree about this, what baptism is. It's uh, at least originally in the New Testament. It's somebody going, it's a ritual washing ceremony, somebody going into a body of water, being fully immersed, coming back out of the water to, to symbolize this new life. Now, it's ob- baptism has obviously become a, a number of different things today, and there's a different number of different forms of baptism today, but that's what it was originally. And that's the type of baptism we practice at LMCC, in deference to the, the scriptural tradition. That's the what. So then the question is, why? Why should I do this? Why should I get dunked? You know, what's, what's the point? And there's a number of different ways we could answer that, some of them very deep and theological. Uh, I would rather focus this morning on something a lot more practical which is the usefulness of baptism for an individual person why do I think as a pastor that baptism is so useful and so important to you personally and let, let's answer that question by asking another question so let's say you do believe um, maybe against your will you know you, but you, you're starting to realize this is true whether I want it to be or not let's say you you are repentant let's say you're ready to to cross the line the question is how are you going to indicate that or declare that because you do have to indicate it and declare it. You can't, there's no such thing as a secret Christian you know, you have to, you have to say it. How are you going to say it? Let's build a menu of options. The, the first option would be you could raise your hand, you know, so setting like this the guy up front, like me says, who repents, who believes? And if it's you, you know, you, you raise your hand there. You've said it in public. Uh, second option would be you could come forward. And this is a very uh, well established tradition in this country. It's kind of fading out now, but it was very popular for a number of decades. It started with Billy Sunday in the early 1900s. Billy Sunday was this National League baseball player. He was actually a star, he's very good. And uh, he retired and became this traveling preacher. He would have revivals, set up a big tent, they would cover the floor with sawdust to keep the dirt down. And so he would go and preach, and all these people from the town would come, and then at the end he would say, who repents? Who believes? Come forward. His phrase was, hit the sawdust trail. Come on down. Come forward. And that's the way you indicate that, yes, I'm in. I'm a Christian now. I want to give my life to Christ. Of course, Billy Graham picked up right where Billy Sunday left off just with even bigger crowds so first Billy Graham started in tents then he moved to arenas then he moved to stadiums and for decade after decade Graham would go to a city 50,000 people would show up to the stadium and he'd preach a sermon and then he'd say who repents who believes come on down and most people would just sit there but thousands of people every time would come pouring out of the stands down onto the field saying yes I repent I believe that's the second way you could indicate that you're crossing the line, coming forward. So yeah, raise your hand, come forward. A third option would be you could have like a piece of paper or a license of some sort, you know, sign your name or check a box, I repent, I believe. And then the fourth option would be you could just, you know, send out an email or, or a letter or um, a status update on Facebook. Or you could, you could tweet, I repent, I believe, hashtag Jesus is Lord, you know, just this... <laughs> public announcement, public service announcement, I repent, I believe. So raise your hand, come forward, send out a tweet or an email, sign your name. And they're all fine. I mean, they're all perfectly legitimate ways of saying I'm in. But the the weakness that all of them have is they all kind of feel sort of arbitrary and artificial and just not big enough you know it's like is it just me or should there be something kind of more holy feeling to to make this kind of decision to say i want to participate with god through christ you know it almost leaves you feeling like i wish that just jesus had set up some way to cross the line i wish that in the bible there was a prescribed way for doing it i wish that all the early christians had done it the exact same way i wish there was just some sort of holy ceremony And, of course, Jesus did set up a specific way. The early Christians did all do it the exact same way. It is prescribed for us in the Bible. There is a holy ceremony, and that ceremony is baptism. Stepping into the water, being lowered under the water, being raised up out of the water, signifying and reenacting your participation in the death and resurrection of Christ Christ signifying and reenacting the cleansing of your soul, the washing away of your sins, and signifying and reenacting the, this old life that you are leaving behind and this new life that you are beginning. So you can raise your hand or come forward or send out an email if you want. My recommendation to you as your pastor is be baptized. It is beautiful. It is biblical. It is the best way I know for saying, I, man, I want to be a part of that. It's the third thing you have to do to become a Christian. Repent, believe, be baptized. There's a fourth thing. This is also a physical external thing like baptism. The fourth thing overall and the second external thing you have to do is partake of communion. You see this in the passage as well. It's the last verse of the passage. After they had been baptized, it says they participated in... um, Meeting in one another's homes for the breaking of bread. And what all New Testament scholars agree is that this phrase breaking of bread is a reference to communion. Uh, We do this every morning at at LMCC. We break the bread into pieces to pass out to you. This is what Jesus did on the last night of his life at the Last Supper. He said he took the bread and he broke it. That's what this is a reference to. The breaking of bread, communion, the Lord's Supper. Jesus is there with his disciples on the last night of his life, and he says, I'm going away, but you can still have me. In the interim, you can still have me, you can still hold me. Here is my body, here is my blood. Take, eat, drink, and do this repeatedly. And now the, the, the critical question here is, well... In what sense? In what sense can we have and hold him? You know, when he says, "This is my body. This is my blood." How literally are we supposed to take that? Like Bill Clinton said, it depends on what your definition of the word "is" is. You know, it's—is it, it literal or is it metaphorical? And this question has divided Christians for centuries now. So, the Catholic position, of course, is that it is completely literally the body and blood of Christ, and that when a person eats and drinks, they physically take Christ into them, and they are physically and spiritually, automatically, just by taking the elements, united to Christ and to God. The Protestant position is, well, it, it can't be that. It can't be literal. It must be metaphorical, symbolic. It must be saying, you know, uh, it's like we are united, and, and it's this thing we do to remember sacrifice. And both positions have major problems with them. So the problems with the Catholic position are, first of all, the night he says it, this is my body, this is my blood, he's still standing there. His body and blood are still there. So that night, at least, it has to be metaphorical and, and symbolic. Now, that doesn't close the discussion, but it's worth remembering. The second problem with the Catholic position is there are all sorts of places in the Bible where it talks about somebody becoming a Christian, that it doesn't mention communion. It doesn't talk about actually eating Christ's body and blood. So that seems to be problematic. But there are problems with the Protestant position as well and the main problem with the Protestant position is that you know it implies well it's just uh it's just the symbols it's just to remember it implies that there's no mystery or actual power or presence in the elements the problem with that is probably best illustrated by John chapter 6 where Jesus says unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no part of me Unless you abide in me, you have, and I in you, there is no life in you at all, and what that is saying is something that says all throughout the New Testament, which is that being a Christian is not just following christ it 's not just obeying christ it 's not just trying to emulate him it 's being united with him and feeding off of him, living in him, him living in you in a very real sense and there's a lot of different ways that that abiding happens, but it seems very odd when he uses this image of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It seems very odd to say that Communion's not one of them. It seems very odd to deny that when you eat the bread and drink the wine, that Christ enters you and that you are united with Christ in a special way in that moment. So problems with, with both positions. The truth is somewhere in the middle, maybe you're somewhere out there. But but what I think all Christians can agree upon is you have to do this. You have to do this to be a Christian. Now, if maybe in some special cases, if you've never heard about it, that's one thing. But if you have the opportunity to take communion, this is one of the ways that you express your belief and unite yourself to Christ. You say, I don't know, it just kind of bothers me, you know. I mean, this this drinking this man's blood. Isn't this like religion at its worst? This feels tribal. It feels superstitious. It feels very strange, very, very odd, this weekly ritual of eating and drinking a person's flesh and blood. Even baptism, this idea that you can go into the water and come back out and your sins are washed away. The whole thing just seems kind of silly to me. And in response to that, And we'll we'll close with this. I want to go back to, to Lewis again. This is in the book. Because he's very eloquent on these two points. So first, with respect to it being very odd and strange, this is what he says. He says, How are we to obtain this new life in Christ? Well, please remember how we acquired the old, ordinary kind of life. We derived it from others, from our father and mother and all our ancestors without our consent, and by a very curious process involving pleasure, pain, and danger. A process you would never have guessed. Most of us spend a good many years in childhood trying to guess it, and some children, when they are first told, do not believe it. And I'm not sure that I blame them, for it's very odd. Now, the God who arranged that process is the same God who arranges how the new kind of life Christ's life is to be spread. We must be prepared for it being odd, too. He did not consult us when he invented sex. He has not consulted us either when he invented this. We have to take reality as it comes to us. There is no good jabbering about what it ought to be like or what we should have expected it to be like. And then here's a, a part about why it's physical. Why does it have to be physical? Why can't it just be believing in your heart? What's with this physical stuff, baptism and communion? He says this. And let me make it quite clear that when Christians say that Christ's life is in them, they do not mean simply something mental or moral. When they speak of being in Christ or of Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ or copying him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them. That the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts. That we are his fingers and muscles, the cells of his body. And perhaps that explains one or two things. It explains why this new life is spread not only by purely mental acts like belief, but by bodily acts like baptism and Holy Communion. It is not merely the spreading of an idea. It is more like a super biological fact. There's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He likes matter, he invented it. That's why it's physical, that's why it's strange. That's why it's not up to us to say, to be above it all. Four things you have to do to become a Christian. If you do think that it's all true, to unite yourself to it. You have to repent. You have to turn around turn back toward God. You have to believe, not just cognitively in an idea, but trusting him with your life. And then you have to be baptized. You express that through baptism and through communion, through uniting yourself to Christ through this ritual. And if, if you do think it's true, you know, if you've been coming and you have this this sense of dread that it is all true, you know, I, I wish it weren't, but it is all true, then this is what you need to do. You say, you're t- you telling me what to do? Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you what to do. I'm your pastor. That's my job. I, I can't control the cut to the heart part. You know, I can't control whether you believe it or not. I have no power over that. Only God can do that. The only thing I can do is tell you what to do if it happens to you. If it happens to you, you got to repent. You need to believe. You need to be baptized. You need to take communion. Let's pray. God, it does seem strange, these rituals, and it does seem odd in some ways, but on the other hand, I want to express our gratitude this morning that you've given us something, something to hold on to and something to touch something to taste, something to feel, through which we can be reminded of and through which we can be brought into this union with you that has been made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. I pray this morning that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd show us what's next for each of us. I pray that you'd bring us to the point of repentance and belief. I pray that you'd Let us know if we're to be baptized. I pray that as we take communion this morning, we would meet you in the elements in a special way.
0: We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.